Well, we're in Matthew 25 today. Matthew 25. In recent weeks, in our study of the gospel according to Matthew, we've been talking about Jesus' return, his second coming, the end of this age. We've been talking about it at length because Jesus was talking about it at length with his disciples on the Mount of Olives on the Tuesday before his crucifixion. This teaching moment occupies two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. And because Jesus' teaching on this is quite lengthy, and because his teaching on it is sometimes complicated, and because we're taking several weeks of sermons to work our way through the material, I want to begin this message by simply summarizing the principles that Jesus has taught us thus far. Let me just narrow them down to three. Three main things Jesus keeps saying in different ways. He keeps saying that his return is near, that we should live like his return is near. And ever since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, his coming is near. It's always the next big thing in the grand scheme of redemptive history. Secondly, he teaches that his return will seem delayed. It'll seem delayed. That word keeps being used. And so we should be prepared for it not coming when we think it might be coming or it taking longer than we think it should. And thirdly, Jesus says, the timing of this all is unknown. The timing is unknown. So don't think that it must be happening very soon. It may not be. And don't be thinking that it definitely can't happen anytime soon. Jesus emphasizes these three things. He triangulates them, we might say. Of course, he says more than these three things. But that's one way to summarize the main points. But let me also remind you how Jesus illustrates these principles several different ways. Remember back in chapter 24, starting in verse 37, he says that his coming would be like the days of Noah. It would be like the flood in the days of Noah, where some are completely taken off guard. They think it's just another Wednesday. He said in chapter 24, verse 43, that his coming would be like a thief that comes in the middle of the night. He said in chapter 24, verse 45, it's like a, a servant who runs the master's house while the master is away, and the timing of the return of the master is unknown, and so he could be caught off guard. Or as we saw last week in the first 13 verses of chapter 25, it's like bridesmaids who need to be ready for the bridegroom's arrival. Well, today we come to another parable, another illustration, which not only again alludes to the seeming delay of his coming, but it also shows us what we should do while we wait. 
what we should be about while we wait for his return. So if previous parables simply taught, be ready, be ready for you know not when he comes, our parable for today teaches us this is what it looks like to be ready. This is what it looks like. Read on with me in your Bibles. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, them, entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who, he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, but he who will have, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like the parable of the ten bridesmaids, which we saw last week, this parable as well needs some clarification about historical, cultural background issues that might be a bit foreign to us. In the ancient Near East, there were different kinds of servants or slaves, some doing menial tasks and then some managing, overseeing important affairs. The three servants in our parable are of the latter type. They oversee things. 
They are put in charge of portions of the master's wealth, assets, or property. The funds, the possessions, the assets are not their own, nor are they gifts from the master. They are the master's assets, which they've been entrusted with, with the understanding that they put those resources to work, that they make a profit for the master. So they are more like investment managers than menial servants. In the parable, these guys are put in charge of large sums of wealth. The wealth is tallied in talents in the parable. A talent was, in the earliest of days, it was a measurement of weight. Then later it became known as a, a, a measurement of wealth or, or money, currency. And scholars today differ slightly on what the equivalent would be today in U.S. dollars for these figures, but they're almost all in the same ballpark. We know that one talent equaled 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a full day's wage of manual labor. So doing the rough math, a talent was about $720,000 in today's U.S. dollars. That's a lot. And then two talents would be close to one and a half million. And five talents, well, that would be over three and a half million U.S. dollars today. Again, these are massive sums of wealth that's been entrusted to these servants. But each has been given a different amount. They all have been given large sums by anyone's reckoning, but different amounts. And that's the key. It's a parable of contrasts. So there are varied resources and then varied returns on investment. And then it ends with varied results or rewards. That's our outline three R words to keep track of. So first, varied resources. Again, the master entrusted three servants with different amounts of wealth. And then notice the little phrase at the end of verse 15, then he went away. The master went away. Like in the previous parable, where there was a waiting for an eventual arrival of the groom and a perceived delay. Remember we saw that last week? Some were ready for his coming, some were not. Well, so with our parable as well, the arrival, the arrival of the person in the parable represents Jesus' second coming, his return. Ever since his ascension recorded at the end of Matthew, he has gone away, we could say. Oh, yes, he has given the Holy Spirit with us, dwelling within us, if we are followers of Christ. He's with us in that sense through his Holy Spirit. But, but bodily, Jesus has gone away. And he will come again. He will come again and he will bring in the fullness of his kingdom. Don't miss that. This is a parable like the one before, 
about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, verse 1 says, and then our parable starts, it is like. It is what? The kingdom of heaven is like. The fullness of the kingdom is what he brings when he comes, and we don't know when that will be. We know we should be ready because it could be soon, and we know by just point of fact, by observation, almost 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words, that it indeed has been a long time. He's gone away a long time. You see verse 19 where that phrase is used. Now after a long time, the master came. So while the master is away, he has entrusted his servants with varied resources Gifts, abilities, opportunities. He gives us what he gives us. Notice that phrase in verse 15. Each according to their ability. Just note that phrase carefully. This whole point of three points is camping out basically on that phrase. Each according to their ability. He, he gives varied resources to his servants, each according to their ability. Which means then that every Christian has been entrusted with their own mix and kinds of resources and privileges and abilities and gifts and skills and strengths and opportunities. We have different capacities and different limitations. That's what the talents in the parable represent. They don't just represent talents like America's got talent or your son is very talented at soccer. Those are not totally unrelated to our parable, but don't think talent like that. No, it was a, it was a, a physical representation of currency in the ancient Near East. And in our parable, that represents all kinds of things. Not just money. Not just financial resources or physical possessions. Though, those are certainly included in what the talents represent. Talents are all of life. Everything we have, all that we are, all that we've been entrusted with. Some have more, some have different, some have more or different limitations. But what we have and who we are and all that we are is given to us by a sovereign and wise God. It's not just our doing or who we've made ourselves to be. Now, we may, we may wish for more of this or that. We may wish for different kinds of gifts than we have. We may wish we had less limitations than we do. It is easy to be jealous and envious of others, who they are, what they've done, what they can do, what they seem to get done. You may long for great wealth 
And think to yourself that if God gave you great wealth, oh, how you would use it so generously. But perhaps he knows that you wouldn't. And that's why he hasn't. That's why you don't have it, perhaps. You may wish for great athletic abilities or social skills and comfortability in social settings that you don't have. You may wish for those, but perhaps the Lord knows that you wouldn't do so well if you had those. Whatever you have, whatever you are, whatever you're not, it's given to you by a sovereign and wise God. And that should be so comforting. That should be so liberating for us, right? To know that it's okay, that we're not the same. God doesn't expect me to be you, or you to be me, or you to be anyone else. Oh, how teens need to get a hold of this. I went to high school. I know. I know what it's like. Even if you're homeschooled, you, you know what it's like. Just the constant comparison. Inferiority. The constant question of who am I? Who am I going to be? How bad will I mess it up? Oh, how moms need this. Especially moms on social media with the extra temptation to compare what other moms are doing. The memories they're making. The smiles they wear and, and the clothes that they don and the exercise they somehow seem to get in. How? You can trust God that you're not them and he has plans for you. Oh, pastors need this as much as anybody. That might surprise you. But pastors are really bad at just sort of wondering, should I be doing more? Am I doing enough? How are they doing? What are they doing? What? Not only are there different talents from one person to another, but each of us probably has a different combination or kinds or degrees of talent that weave in and out depending on the season of life we're in. Things change. So moms of little kids don't have much time for anything else. That's a unique season. Sometimes... The plan for schooling your kids changes, and now you're thrust into homeschooling, and you never planned on that, and that's a unique season. But empty nesters are a different kind of unique season, and they usually have more flexible time, and they usually get better sleep. Grandparents have all kinds of new joys and new experiences and new responsibilities, College is its own unique opportunity for four years or more. Martin Luther called these kinds of things stations. Stations. And we don't just have one station. We have many stations in our life, and they, they come and go. You should think through what stations the Lord has you in these days. May I suggest a take-home assignment? I don't do this kind of thing often. 
it's enough to come to church and to hear a sermon and to put it into action, but let me suggest a take-home assignment. Perhaps you take the time in the next week to ponder, to catalog, and even write down a thorough list of your talents. Talents, not, not like if you're artistic, though that could be one on your list, but, but job and finance and spouse and children and singleness, possessions, your home, trials of various kinds are kind of a talent that needs to be resourced for the Lord. What are your experiences, your history, your past, your knowledge of things, or maybe inclinations or sensitivities? All these are resources, opportunities, privileges, sometimes challenges, but this is the kind of stuff of talents. What opportunities are there that are not on the list but should be? What opportunities are there that are untapped or underutilized? List those. These are talents. The master has entrusted us with these things to put those things to work for his purposes on his behalf. The old Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, in the 1800s, he wrote this about our parable. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges, our advantages as those who possess the Bible. These are all talents. And Ryle asks, whence came these things? Where'd these things come from? Well, they are on loan from God. We are God's stewards, Ryle says. Which leads us secondly to this. There are varied returns on investment. Returns on investment. They're called our OIs in the business world, returns on investment. An investment is made, and then hopefully there is a return, a gain made on the investment. That's what the servants in the parable were expected to, to garner, a, a gain. They're to get a decent ROI. Now that quote from J.C. Ryle used an important word, stewards. Ryle said, we are God's stewards. Now that, that word is not in our parable, but the concept clearly is. Stewards are those who are put in charge of another's goods to manage those goods for the best interest of the master. The activity the management of that is called stewardship. Stewardship. The idea of being stewards of what is the Lord's means that all that he gives us is really not our own. It's his that he puts us in charge of to use for his purposes. 
So here's another take-home assignment for you. This one's not written. You can just do it verbally. Go throughout this next week just looking around at your stuff, your possessions, your money, your things, even your goals, your relationships, your life, your health, your time. And just keep whispering as you identify each of these. Over each one, say, not mine. Not mine. You get in the car, you remember, not mine. And it's not just not yours because you've got more payments left. It's not yours because all is the Lord's. All is the Lord's. Not mine. Do you remember Finding Nemo? That came out 20 years ago, so maybe kids aren't watching it these days, but many of us in the room will remember those seagulls that incessantly said, mine, 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 about everything. They said, mine, mine, mine. All right, take that and flip it upside down and go through your next week, if not your whole life, and just keep reminding yourself, not mine, not mine, not mine. These kids... I sometimes wish they were not mine. They are mine, but they're not mine, Lord. They're yours. They're yours. So in our parable, that kind of stewardship is assumed. It's the understood role of the servants. It's why the master left resources to these three different servants to put those resources to work. And the one who'd been given five talents, he did just that. Notice in verse 16, he went at once and he traded. And in the Greek, it's literally, and he kept trading. And he garnered five more talents. That's a very good ROI. And so too, the man with two talents, he did the same. And he garnered two more talents for the master. Both these servants were faithful. Notice that the one with two talents wouldn't be expected to produce five talents more. He's a two-talent guy. And two-talent guys can be faithful. They were both faithful. But there's a contrast when it comes to the third servant, the one who'd been given one talent. The one, verse 18, who had received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, in these days, that wouldn't have been the weirdest thing. Some of you do have money buried in your backyard, I bet. But just so you know, that's kind of a weird thing these days. Just so you know. In first century times, that wouldn't have been that weird. You want to keep something safe? One way of just securing it is to bury it. But we've already read the whole of the parable, and so we know that this third approach isn't good. And what isn't good about it? Well, we'll learn more as we read on and study on, but we've already learned and thought about how the expectation would have been for any master putting a servant in charge of his resources is that the servant would put those resources to work. 
He'd make benefit for the master based on the resources he'd been put in charge of. You know that person that manages your investments? Probably not all of us in the room have one of those, but many of us, maybe most of us do. Well, imagine that after decades of thinking that that person had been putting your money to work and making various investments, they told you that they decided not to do that, that they decided to cash out and put cash, your cash, in their backyard. So they say, good news, we didn't lose anything. I just got to go dig it up. And you'd be thinking, what are you talking about? The whole point of this relationship was that you would invest. And I know there's risk involved. I know it's not a given that if I give you this much, you will give me X amount back. But, but you at least, you expected that they would be making attempts, good attempts, to grow your assets. So let's take this out of the metaphorical and the parabolical, and let's make it concrete in everyday life. Remember that list of talents that you're going to work on later this week? Well, here's the question to put to each of them if you dare. This is extra credit. To ask of each of them, what are you doing with these assets to put them to use in the master's best interest? He has given you all those things, not just for your enjoyment, not just for your survival, and not because you've earned them, but for his purposes, kingdom purposes. They are to be kingdom investments. We are to make conscious kingdom investments of everyday life things. And that's what it means to be ready for his coming. In some areas of life, as you rethink some of these things, it'll mean a restructuring of things, a, a moving of assets, a, a getting more strategic here, pulling back there. Perhaps kids' sports have come to dominate your weekend schedule in such a way there are just too many Sundays out of 52 that you have to miss. Maybe it's time to rethink that in light of this parable. Or maybe you could just think of actual kingdom giving, like giving to a local church like this one, which is what we covenant to do in part when we covenant together in fellowship, in membership as a church. Remember that God doesn't expect merely a 10% of your income, like you can sort of buy him off, give him his 10%, and you get 90 to do whatever you want with. No, it's all his. It's all his. So it doesn't mean give it all to the church. No, you got peanut butter and jellies to, to buy and, and socks to get. But, but we should be giving to a local church if we're members of it sacrificially, generously, happily, and strategically. 
Those are three principles that we find in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the two best giving chapters in the whole Bible. Read them if they're unfamiliar to you. We should give strategically and happily and sacrificially. And for many of us, that'll mean more than 10%. Or maybe you'll think of how you just use your home, how you share your kitchen table, your dining table, Maybe you, you know that you need to share more of your home, more of your time, more of your life with others. Or perhaps in this season of us thinking about discipleship as a church, you'll decide to get more strategic in a relationship or two or three or five to invest in them for eternal purposes. On and on the list could go. But for many things in our lives, this is, and this is really important, I think, It'll mean not an overhaul, not a total restructuring, not a deletion of this and a full addition of this, but it will mean a conscious awareness and intention for kingdom usefulness. It'll mean a deliberate focus about the stuff that we already do, that we always have to do. Like parenting kids well. You may want to parent kids well for their success, for your own sanity, or for the glory of God, for their soul's sake, for eternity's sake. Thinking like this doesn't mean vacations go out the window. No, take your two weeks of work off and just pray. No, use your vacations. Go on vacations if the Lord gives you the means. I just got back from Mexico and it was wonderful. But there's a way to think about that same thing as either me time or refreshment. The Lord gives rest, recuperation, that we might come back to busier work, more invigorated than we left it. On and on the list goes. Ask yourself, whose are these things? What are they for? And then ask the harder question, because you know the answers to those two. Ask the harder question, how can they best be put to use for the eternal kingdom purposes of Christ? Thirdly, there are varied results at the end. Varied results or rewards, we might say. And I know we're just now beginning in verse 19. I'm very aware of the fact that we've gone through about four verses so far. But that's intentional. There are three parts to the parable, and we're entering the third. It just takes longer in the telling of the parable that Jesus gave us. Varied results, that's what comes after a long time. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of the servants came. And when he came, there was a reckoning, a settling of accounts. There are three servants, but really only two kinds of servants. There are the faithful ones and the unfaithful one. The first two are the faithful 
The one who'd been given five talents doubled his return. The one who'd been given two talents doubled his return. And the master says the exact same thing to each of the first two servants. Do you see that? Verse 21 and verse 23, it is word for word repeated exactly the same. Why? Because though they differed in their amounts, amounts given, amounts had at the end when the master returned, though the first and second servant differed on bottom lines, the master's commendation to them was the same because both were faithful. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, that's just worthy of some meditation if you want to do another homework assignment this week. To think through the commendation of the master to these servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. To, to meditate on the increased responsibility given to these faithful servants. I put you in charge of a little bit. And now I will give you much. And to meditate on the joy in the fellowship that comes when the master arrives. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a, a window into heaven. This is a window into the Lord's commendation and increased responsibility and joy in fellowship that we receive when Jesus returns and we join him forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. What a day of rejoicing that will be. But not for all. Because there's the third servant. Verse 24, the one who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. In other words, stealing. So I was afraid, verse 25 says. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. This is pathetic, isn't it? Here, have what is yours. Here, we see what was behind his strategery to bury the talent and do nothing else with it. He actually had a very negative view of the master, a very wrong-headed view of the master. This guy had God wrong. I knew you to be a hard, exacting man, unmerciful. I knew you to be the kind of man who reaps in someone's field that isn't his own. I knew you to be the kind of man that I should be afraid of. Not afraid of in a good way. Not holy awe and fear like every Christian should have of the Lord, but, but dread. Douglas O'Donnell commenting on this. He captures it so well. 
when he says of this man that he sees Jesus as a hard or harsh or even mean, merciless or cruel character who acts unjustly, demanding a harvest from a field where no seeds have been planted. His view of God, if you will allow me, is so high it's too low. Oh Lord, you're such a sovereign master, an unmoved mover, that whatever I did with this talent wouldn't matter to you anyway, so I did nothing. He has cloaked his laziness behind his solemn God-talk excuses. He has a high view of God, but a wrong view of God. He has a fear of God, but an improper fear of God. And thus, he has the audacity to blame generous Jesus for his own apathy and inactivity. That's a stinging summary. And it's followed by Jesus' own stinging indictment. Verse 26. You wicked and slothful servant. You you knew that I reap. He's imitating him. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. Gather where I scatter no seed. Well, verse 27. If you had thought that, then you ought to have invested my money in a bank. Where at least you get the whatever, you know, 0.05% or whatever Wells Fargo gives you these days. Jesus continues. Verse 28. Take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Total desolution. And cast the worthless servant, verse 30 says, into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this man's reward, if we can call that, the result is not only the removal of all that he had that was the master's, and not only a banishment from the presence of the master. In the end, his lot is nothing less than hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth outer darkness. Now, I know many of us are thinking right now, hell? Hell for not investing enough or well enough or even at all in the master's kingdom? Well, I know it seems harsh, but you have to understand what's behind it. It's not just the actions. It's the attitude about God that led to certain actions in those attitude and actions really betray something so fundamental, something so tied to salvation. This man had God fundamentally wrong. His estimation of Jesus betrayed his unbelief in Jesus, hence his lack of salvation. This man didn't understand the first thing about the graciousness of his master, his motivation, his view of the master led to a motivation of doing nothing for the master. It was all about him. All he cared about was protecting himself. 
He was self-oriented, self-protecting, self-focused, and stuff-focused, stuff-protecting. Those who don't get grace, they want to draw strict lines between what is God's and what's mine. And they say, oh, you can have what's yours. Here, have it. You don't get grace. Grace is what God gives. And he gives it so freely and so graciously. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus not only lived perfectly, but died sacrificially in our place. As Jesus put it in Matthew 20, verse 28, I came to be a ransom, a payment, to give my life as a ransom for sin. Jesus giving his life as a ransom suggests that there was a payment to be made because there are people who, like you and me, were by nature in bondage, in bondage to guilt, in bondage to death, in bondage to sin and Satan. But on that cross, Jesus made a payment a payment that we might be freed from that bondage and that we might go free now to follow him. That he would give his life as a ransom for us means, yes, that we're free, free from guilt, free from death, free from sin, free from Satan's tyranny, yes, but not free from him. We've been freed unto him. We've been freed for his good works. Which means then that when we get that, when we understand who he is and how gracious he's been and what he's given us, we can't help but just get to work. We can't help but just put our hand to the plow. Oh, not perfectly, but when God gets a hold of our hearts with his grace, there's transformation and our wills are changed, so we desire to please the master while he's away. Have you come to believe in Jesus like that? Oh, don't hear from this parable, well, you better get to work or you'll go to hell. No, that's putting the cart before the horse. You have to get the gospel. Be free from your guilt and be freed from the penalty of your sin. You need to trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness. Call on him as a ransom for your sin. But then know that that kind of grace, when it infects a heart, it transforms it. You'll begin to see change. So don't presume to come to Jesus if you want to be real protective with your stuff. It just doesn't work that way. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore glorify God with your body. Christians, he's given us so much. He's given you so much. He's given me so much. And he has given what he's given, not just for your pleasure, not just for your survival, but for his eternal good kingdom.
purposes. And that is what it looks like to be ready for him to come back. It just simply means being purposeful about life. It means being busy with his assets. It means being intentional with what he's given you. It means to live life like he is returning. It's to live life in hopeful anticipation of those precious words that we might hear one day when we see him face to face. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray for everyone here who hasn't yet come to trust in this Jesus. Perhaps some are here wondering why anyone would take so much time to talk about the end of the world or Jesus coming back. Lord, only you can give eyes to see and ears to hear, to truly hear the biblical gospel, the good news of Jesus coming and dying and raising and living and empowering to serve. Would you give faith today? Would you give us as followers of Christ endurance and joy? Would you give us productivity in your kingdom and good good strategic efforts for how to live our lives well now in light of eternity, in light of your coming. We long for it, Lord, and so we pray. Like our Bibles end, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.